Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Hospitality TV. I am your host, Raphael Peterson. If this is your first time tuning in, this show was created for everyone that is connected to the hospitality industry in one way or another with the goal of interviewing leaders in the industry that have real-life insights and lessons that can help all of us get better at what we do. I've done this essentially to provide value to the hospitality community, that and I also really have a great time interacting and learning from all my guests. And all I ask in return is that you share the show. If you find it to be of any value to you or for anyone that you might know, please share the show. The more we share it, the more it grows and the more potential it has to be helpful to a larger amount of people. Now, for today's episode, uh, it's a recording of a recent seminar delivered by Master Sommelier Will Costello for the Psalm community in San Diego. He flew out from Las Vegas to do this for us, so incredibly grateful. The subject of the seminar was navigating the current marketplace as a sommelier, negotiating salaries, contract work, bonuses, improving your value as a psalm more from a dollars and cents perspective than from a can you remember the cruise of Beaujolais perspective. This is by far, in my opinion, one of the most important skills to have in order to create more job opportunities to continue to create the value and growth for the industry. I recently started hosting these educational seminars followed by networking sessions for the local community. So if you're interested in participating in these, please DM me on Instagram at HospitalityTV and I can add you to the list. Uh, We're hosting these about every other month. As a friendly reminder, you can get these full podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts and the full videos are released on YouTube all under HospitalityTV. Now, that being said, on to the show. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, so I um, thank you guys for having me. I grew up in San Diego in Mira Mesa, and the thing I loved about it the most is that I literally went to elementary school, middle school, and high school all in Mira Mesa. Now I have a child and live in Las Vegas. Um, my wife had the same kind of experience, grew up in an area of, of Las Vegas called Green Valley, went to elementary school, middle school, high school with her same ilk and you know, graduated with the same people she knew from kindergarten. I had the same experience and uh, we want to do that for our kids. So I will probably stay grounded in Las Vegas. Although I love San Diego. My parents still live here. My sister lives here. We have good friends and lots of community that have uh, been here for a long time. So I always love to make it back. But to that point, I sort of started my career and cut my teeth here um, and moved on to what I'm doing now, which is working for a family-owned uh, winery in Santa Barbara. I don't know how many of you have heard of the vineyard Bienacito, which is one of the most famous vineyards in California. I am paid to say that, but also believe it. Um, it is one of the sort of bellwethers of change within California history, right? You had phylloxera, which unfortunately after the industry came back um, through prohibition, ton of vineyards got taken out by AXR1 and the difficulties with Phylloxera's first kind of pass through, right? Well, Bienacito was in this area that was tucked away from almost anything. And the Miller family had a nursery and were able to help repropagate at least Chardonnay and Pinot Noir throughout California where they had been destroyed. So it is a historic um, property. What you'll taste outside uh, if you opt to stay for reception is some of the wines that we brought for more of our commercial aspect. Things that when I was a sommelier, I looked at as things that fit in banquets, right? People who are coming for a banquet event don't want to 
call out a single producer or a single vineyard wine, right? The hosts don't usually want to pay for that. And they're a hell of a lot better than what I got to drink yesterday at a second, a two-year-old's birthday. Um, has anybody ever heard of Crane Lake? Oh yeah, what about CK Mondavi? Yeah, uh, Yellowtail. That's what they had at this two-year birthday. And, and I'm like, oh, what are you guys pouring? Oh, the, the one that was okay was uh, Chris Pinot Grigio, K-R-I-S. I'm sure we've all seen this, right? Well, thankfully I get to work for a winery that makes some pretty killer wines for those sort of banquet prices. But what we're here to talk about today um, is sort of my recommendations and hardships throughout the idea of my career and growing. Uh, I started here wanting to be a pilot. So I graduated from Mira High School thinking that I was going to go to college mostly just to get a four-year degree. I got into Cal State San Marcos, so it was relatively in our backyard. My parents super supportive and decided to buy a house in San Marcos, A, because they're savvy real estate investors and realized that at that time there wasn't a lot out there. The road that we had to drive to get to our house was dark and had no lights on it to get there. And now it's incredible on this golf course, but they wanted to support me in going to college. What I wanted to do was just go to school, get as quickly a four-year degree as I can while flying planes. And trying to be a pilot, my goal had always been to succeed to the highest level that I possibly could. So has anybody ever heard of an A380 before? So it's an Airbus, it's the biggest plane. If you've ever seen sort of Etihad Airlines or Emirates Airlines, it's the big plane that can hold like 800 people. It's the one that can fly for 22 hours without landing, the longest flights in the world. And my goal was, I wanna fly that plane. I wanna start now flying little Cessnas and eventually grow until I could fly a 737 and then maybe grow to flying something else until I got to be an A380 pilot. And I'll be honest with you, it was primarily not because I like flying a plane. Flying a plane is actually really boring. Um, I just came back from Korea two weeks ago and it's 11 and a half hour flight from Seoul to Seattle. On that plane, I got to eat dinner. I got to watch Yellowstone, which I, um, I don't know how many of you guys have seen that show, uh, but I watched most of the first season. I got to take a nap, which was great. I got to have some beers, which was good. None of those things do you get to do except for eating dinner in the front seat of an airplane. And through all of my education, through flying, I realized this is very, very boring. You are pretty much by yourself for most of the time in your training, flying across the desert. And I used to fly out of Palomar Airport to Vegas all of the time because it was an easy flight. It was about two and a half hours. I could do it every time of the year because there's not very many clouds. But the main reason I wanted to fly that A380 is because I was somewhat lazy. <laughs> I wanted to be able to fly that plane because legally speaking, a pilot is only allowed to fly 80 hours of seat time in a month. I mean, it sounds pretty good, right? When most of us in restaurants, I mean, I was working 80 hour weeks, right? A pilot can fly 80 hours in a month. And imagine if you take off from Los Angeles and you fly to Singapore and that's 16 hours, well, you have three days where you can't fly. And then you fly 16 hours back and you get home and you take a week off and you get to be with your family. And then you fly one more trip there and one more trip back and you sort of say, okay, there was my month. So I wanted to do that because A, it was the top of the pyramid of what I could do, but also because I was somewhat lazy. And this was me coming out of high school, having played sports and, you know, at least in San Diego, going to the CIF finals for swimming and all of these things. But I had to get a job doing something else to pay for the flying. And so my first job was at La Costa Resort 
which is sure if you have been there, you know that it's a historic property in San Diego, right? Like Lucille Ball used to um, go there coming down from Hollywood to have like her vacation time. And it's still a great property that's host PGA tours. Well, I worked at a place called Blue Fire Grill. I don't know if it's still there anymore, but uh, Blue Fire Grill, it was a shit show. Like it was totally getting thrown into like the fire completely. I thought it was going to be, oh great, I'm gonna go work at this upscale resort and you know, it's gonna be just take, I grew up again, if you guys know Mira Mesa, it's a working class town, right? And that was my family. I thought I was gonna be taking care of like the Hollywood elite and you know, the conversations we had about going to this job were people talking down to me. I'm like, that didn't happen at all. Like everyone was so nice, but they were cranking. Like we were understaffed with 380 covers a night. I was a busser and I actually applied for the job to be a host because I didn't really want to do a busser job where I was running around like picking up plates and pouring water and polishing glasses and doing all the stuff that I'm sure we've all done, right, to get where we are in our careers. But I realized by sort of the first week that I love this. I really do. I love being in restaurants. I love being in operations. I love the fact that I think I have uh, adapted adult ADHD because of the fact that in restaurants, like you have to do 13 things at once, right? And you can't not think about those 13 things at the same time, because if you forget one, somebody doesn't want to give you a tip or you get a complaint that you forgot to bring their cocktail to the table or whatever. But it sort of suited the feeling that I had about hospitality and giving people the best that they possibly could have at the same time as being engaged in, in something physical. Flying a plane, very boring. Working in restaurants, I would say the opposite, right? Because you're constantly engaged in people. From there, I met one of my mentors, a guy named Christian Eam. Christian went to hospitality college in Switzerland in Zurich, and I didn't even know that that was a thing. Like I went to college knowing you could get a, like I got a degree in sociology that you could, yeah, you could, you know, go get an MBA, you could be a doctor, lawyer, all of these things. I didn't know that there were dedicated spaces for hospitality. And he got hired because he wanted to come over to California. He wanted to live by the beach and surf during the day and work at a hotel or, or restaurant at night. Well, Christian had come from this place that was very much along the lines of like, everything has to be perfect. He was telling me stories that they would set the tables with pink or orange string at their restaurant so that you could take the string and you could line it up across the corners and everything needed to be in line. The line of the fork, the line of the water knife, the line of the water glass needed to line up with the same glasses across the way there. And I went, oh shit, at night when it's like Blue Fire Grill and I have over my shoulder all of the tablecloths, I'm just like putting them down, throwing down two water glasses, two wine glasses and some silverware and walking away, right? I didn't have that attention to detail that it needed to have from somebody like him. He's like, oh yeah, this place is somewhere I'm just working because I need a job. Well, he also had the feeling that this probably wasn't right for him. And the reason I'm telling you about this is because San Diego has come a long, long, long way in terms of hospitality and not only the people who work in the industry, but also the customers. Blue Fire Grill was somewhere that like you looked forward to going to because it was a like, top spot to go. Now there are so many great places around town that actually focus on those kind of details in hospitality that it 
really has become its own culture among itself. Well, Christian wanted to leave this place that was kind of just putting down silverware and food on the tables. And there was a guy, Papa Doug, who was opening the Grand Del Mar, and this was in 2006. And Christian sort of realized, hey, if I go get this job there now at the golf club, I might have the opportunity to open this new hotel and this new restaurant that they were building. And if you know um, Addison, which I believe now is Southern California's only three Michelin star restaurant, uh, we opened that, uh, that restaurant with the idea that we wanted that to happen. We wanted that to come to a culmination. And that was before there were ever any thoughts of Michelin even coming this far south. They actually did, I think it was 2007 was when they did LA slash Las Vegas. One time they did that and then the uh, recession happened and then they didn't really come back until whenever they started coming back to Southern California. But Papa Doug said, I want to have five stars. I want to have five diamonds. I want to have a grand award from Wine Spectator. I want to have every award that you could possibly get. Here's a blank check. Go ahead and do it. And Christian asked me, hey, do you want to come over to this restaurant that we're trying to open that is going to try to do these things? And I was a little nervous because the only experience that I had had was working in this restaurant that was fast paced and just get the job done. And it was the best decision of my life to have his belief in me say, hey, you can do this. You shouldn't be at this restaurant anymore. You should go somewhere else that has the potential to fulfill your work ethic. And I've never had a hard time working, but he said, you could also focus on learning more. And one of the things I wanted to say, and, and I have a, a ton of things I wanted to point out, but the key performance indicators are the things in the industry that I think made me successful was always being interested, asking questions and continually trying to gain more and more and more understanding of the business. For example, I didn't know anything, anything about food when I first got into restaurants. So I would sit there and when it was slow, we've all been in slow restaurants, Tuesday night, I would ask Darren, Darren was from uh, Alaska. I would ask him questions and I would say, hey, what is in that like broth that's made in the seafood stew? Like, tell me everything. And he's like, well, there's this and this. I'm like, wait a second. I don't know what that is. He's like, well, tarragon is this yada, yada, yada. And thyme is this yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, I didn't even know any of these ingredients. I didn't know, like, besides seeing at Red Lobster, um, the squid rings that come out, fried calamari, I never knew what a calamari looked like. And he's like, okay, hey, it's slow. Can I go take Will in the back and go show him the prep kitchen? And we'd go in the back and he'd break the calamari out of the like fresh case and show me what a calamari looks like. And constantly asking questions kept me engaged. And that engagement also allowed that people around me saw that I was interested and constantly wanting to learn more. And what I mean is the chef had to at, get asked, hey, can I take Will in the back to go look at some calamari, right? So now the chef of this restaurant knows, hey, Will's asking questions about this, whereas every other server there all they wanted to get their, you know, cash out at the end of the night and go home, right? Being engaged is one of the key things that I say that you could or should do. And every interview I've ever gone in, I try to be the one who's driving the boat. I try to be the one asking the questions. Hey, tell me how this part of the business works. Tell me how this works. If I was in this position and I came into a situation like A, B, or C, 
How would we handle this? Tell me how my perspective should be and how your perspective should be. I try to drive the boat in every single conversation that I have, at least in terms of learning the business, because that shows someone that you are engaged and interested. If you've ever gone into an interview and all it was was them asking you questions and then they got to the end and said, well, do you have any questions for me? And you said, no, I think I'm good. I don't think you got that job. And if you did, good for you. <laughs> I wouldn't have hired you because generally speaking, having somebody who's engaged and said, okay, somebody talked at me for half hour for an interview. Now I have half hour of questions myself, right? That engagement generally shows everyone around you that you are dedicated and focused and interested. Um, anyway, I going back to the story about Addison, we opened this restaurant. He said, you should be a captain there. I never actually was a waiter in my life before that. I was a busser and a food runner and cleaned dishes in the dish pit and all of this other stuff. And he said, no, you can do this. Just tell them you're getting a job as a captain. You're not here to be a busboy. And so I got this job as a captain. There's a guy in the room here who is actually my, uh, my busser or my, my back waiter, um, Juan Carlos here. Uh, and so we've, we worked together from the time that we opened Addison until uh, when Juan Carlos moved on to do something else. And it truly is a place that if you, if you wanna spend the money to dine there, which I think now it's like $395 or something crazy like that. Uh, I think it's worth it. I think the experience of service there is something that we grew over time and put into play. There's a number of people in the room who I've worked with at that restaurant and what they do there is truly world-class. It's hard to learn that unless you have experienced it either on the side of the guest, which is very expensive, or on the side of the employee, which is sometimes very low pay and not at all what you expected, right? I mean, I did not think I was gonna be working 80 hour weeks to get this restaurant running and up to its speed. But the lessons that you learn from being there sort of, at least for me, translated through all the rest of my career. When I decided to leave Addison, I knew I needed to leave San Diego because I took my master's only exam for the first try. The feedback that I got was, you need to be running a wine program. I was the GM of the restaurant at Addison and had nothing to do outside of arranging to count the inventory with our wine director, anything to do with the wine program. I didn't know how much a bottle of uh, any, any Pinot cost on the list. I knew it was 135 bucks to sell, but I didn't know the cost. I didn't know our markup. I didn't know how our margins worked. I didn't know how our cost of goods outside of our P&L line looked. And for the feedback I got, if you're going to run a wine program and you're gonna be a master sommelier, you should probably know this intimately, the same way that I knew how the P&L worked at our restaurant. So I knew that there wasn't another job in San Diego that was going to uh, work. If I wasn't gonna work at Addison as the wine director, which my mentor was the wine director, I needed to go somewhere else. I applied for a job at the Hotel Bel Air in uh, Los Angeles. Had a meeting with a guy named Tim who still works for the Wolfgang Puck Group. Uh, Tim told me, yeah, this is probably a 75 or 80 hour a week job. And remember what I said about flying planes? I, I'm innately lazy. Like I force myself to do hard work, <laughs> but I don't want to. I think all of us could probably admit that, right? If we have the chance to sit with a cold beer on the couch and like Saturday afternoon, just watch something that's like mindless, we would. I'm like, I'm, I just left an 80 hour a week job. I'm not gonna do this, even though I can run the program and, and get it done. So I thought, okay, if it's not in operations, maybe I'll go get a job with a distributor. I interviewed with Regal, which I think is still in California, right? 
and they said, yeah, you don't know what you're doing at all. Like you have no idea how to sell wine. You might know a lot on paper because I had passed my advanced sommelier and I had taken the MS exam and they're like, but you don't really know how this business works. And they're right, I didn't. I had no idea how the wine business worked. I actually should have, listening to myself in hindsight 2020, should have paid attention a lot more. Instead of running the restaurant, I should have taken some of my time, 20%, and had conversations with our wine director. Hey, when you're picking these wines to put them on the list, like tell me your whole process from the point that somebody sends you an email wanting to show you some wine to the point that you pull the trigger and send a PO to the point that you put it on the wine list for a certain price. How does all of this work? I had no idea, but had people around me who said, hey, you're not an idiot. You can probably go figure this out on your own. And I thankfully got a call from a friend in Las Vegas. She was leaving her job with Pierre Gagnier, who's a, another three Michelin star chef. And she said, hey, they want me to find the replacement. They don't want it to be somebody who's local, mainly because I think we can probably agree this. Every town has its own idiosyncrasies and every town is very small. Everyone knows each other. They know the good and the bad. I think they wanted a fresh perspective. So they were interested in having somebody from out of town. And I got the chance to run the whole beverage program, which was a big uh, step up from somebody who had never run a beverage program, right? They had a five-star restaurant, a five-star spa, five-star hotel. So it made sense in terms of my resume to be able to do this. And thankfully, the guy who hired me, and I will admit this fully, didn't know anything about beverage. He's like, well, you have some idea, so you could probably do it. And from there, I was sort of off to the races. And I can tell you the second key thing about uh, any part of your career is this right here. The people around you who you can trust and lean on and call in time of need is the probably second most important thing. You yourself need to do the job, but being able to call people and say, hey, I'm in a bind. I don't understand what's happening right now and I don't want to fall into a situation where this is gonna bite me in the ass, right? I called so many people. I called sometimes for one situation, six different people said, hey, how would you handle this? How would you handle this? How would you handle that? And all of their perspectives are different. And the decision that I made was probably even different from that, right? But getting that perspective from people you trust was so important for me. Um, I got married in 2016 and working till 2 a.m., realized that my wife who worked nine to five probably wasn't going to lead to a long and healthy relationship. Uh, some people are able to do it. Um, my wife is not that patient. So, and I realized I should probably be a better partner than saying, hey, honey, I'll see you on Sundays and uh, Monday morning. And so I started looking elsewhere, I actually got a call from the Miller family who I mentioned because I had written my program to be one that was focused on local uh, wine. Las Vegas has 44 million people on average who come every year, people from Asia and Europe and Australia and South America and all over, and all of them want to drink local wine. Where would they think locally? Most people think Napa and Sonoma because they are very well-known wine regions. To me, from Las Vegas, the closest major region that makes quality wine is Santa Barbara. I can drive from my house in five hours and 15 minutes from our house to Bienecito Vineyard. So I recognized that and started building a program that was focused on these regions to highlight the winemakers who had for years been sort of underappreciated. And it was great because I could also call them, go meet them and say, hey, I wanna add 13 vintages of some wine to the list. 
Would that be okay? They're like, absolutely. You want to put it at a five-star restaurant in Las Vegas when it's hard to sell wine there already and you want to just get them? Absolutely. How much do you want? And so I had about 250 different uh, selections of Santa Barbara wine, many of them multi-vintage verticals because people were overjoyed to be able to do that. So I was championing a region that was underappreciated and also had great values. I mean, I could put 2004 Amble Neo Pinot Noir on the list for $135 that tasted fantastic. And when somebody came into a restaurant where all the Burgundy, even back then, was pretty expensive, we could turn the page to Santa Barbara and say, hey, here's cool climate Pinot Noir from older than I have on the list from what I believe to be a Grand Cru vineyard. You should taste these. And people left hopefully going back to their homes and wherever they came from going, wow, you know what? I was, thought I was going to drink Napa and Sonoma and I drank Santa Barbara. So that caught the eye of, I think I had made a, a little name in Santa Barbara. Hey, there's this Las Vegas sommelier who's coming out and asking us questions and wants to buy a bunch of wine and uh, changed, I think, to the point where the Miller said, hey, what if we asked him to work for us? And that was shortly after I got married and said, honey, there's a chance that I can work nine to five. I never worked nine to five in my career. And how many of you work nine to five right now? One, two, <laughs> two-ish. It sort of seems like a dream. Uh, if you can do that, the, to the job totally changes. Now my job is like 3 a.m. until 11 p.m. sometimes as I work as the export director for our company, selling wines to India, Singapore, South America, Canada, all over Asia and Europe. And so I literally the other night was on a phone call with somebody who couldn't figure out how to input a routing number into their system in Dubai. So he's like, no, you have to stay up until like 10 or 11 when the bank in Dubai opens so you can help us figure this out. I'm like, I, I sent you all the information on a paper, man. Like, let's get this done. But it truly is a, a culmination of my career of sort of learning hospitality, learning the PL side of this and being able to give that back to a, a family who, who believed in me again. And I, I guess that's the other thing I would say that I have gotten a lot of people who believed in me, some because of my certifications. I had passed some tests that said, hey, I know what I'm doing in terms of wine. But I think the other part was sincerely being interested and willing to make my business and their business align. I always felt that I was doing this for them. Like there, there are people who I know who spend their company's money like it's going out of style. Like it, it just, they'll go and they'll have a night out and they'll spend $1,500 to host two buyers. The Millers are not like that. Papa Doug. <laughs> even wasn't like that. Papa Doug spent his own money like that. But when he looked at the, the P&L statement, he's like, why are we giving so many comps away? What are these comps for? Why is this happening? And so I always wanted to spend or treat the business like it was my own. And if you do that too, people will, will give you the, the trust and respect to take their business to another level. So that was a, a lot of what I wanted to say about the history, but the key learnings, I want to make sure I cover this. Relationships with key leaders, which I talked about. Interest in the business. Um, one of them, three key solutions and never rec never just complaining. Restaurants suck. I will admit it. I probably will never go back and work in a restaurant. I'm just going to be honest. I know all of you are still working in restaurants and 
I love it, but it's so easy to complain. It's so easy to complain about a night when it's slow and you're expecting tips and why can't the marketing team do more to bring people in or what's wrong with this, you know, Saturday night, they seat everybody at seven and then it becomes a shit show. Why can't they spread out the reservations or whatever? Obama used to say this to his staff. I'll find a solution as long as you bring me three good ideas and then together we'll come up with one solution that's gonna work, right? But don't come to me with complaints because I'm here to help drive the ship forward. So one of the things that I always believed in was thinking about how you can come up with solutions. Three solutions at least to come to the table so that some key decision maker can say, you know what, I liked that one. That one's really good, let's try to put it into play, right? So always come up with three solutions. Um, personal accountability and leadership. You have to sort of be the person who's willing to stand out from the crowd. I mentioned that by asking questions at Blue Fire Grill and saying, hey, show me where the calamari's made, right? But it also is about saying, hey, I wanna get here early and I wanna stay late and can I come in and help you do inventory? If the wine director, sommelier, or some GM says to you somebody, oh shit, I gotta be here tomorrow for inventory in the morning because it's the last day of the month, the accountable person who gets looked at says, hey, can I come in? Even if you don't have to pay me, I just wanna learn more about this. Can I come in and help you do inventory? That person is gonna be super stoked, right? And they're gonna thank you for helping them do inventory, even though, honestly, you probably are going to be in the way because if you don't know how to read the label of a German Riesling bottle and they're gonna have to teach you how to do that, that's gonna make inventory twice as long, but if you come in every month and you're helping them constantly, right? Now, hey, next time you want a Saturday shift because there's a big party or they want you to put on the wedding, they're like, well, cool, I know who I'm gonna put on the wedding who's gonna get you know, the 25% gratuity and people give me handshakes for 100 bucks or whatever it works, right? So accountability and leadership. And the leadership side, I would say is mostly amongst your peers. Um, I always think about the saying like there's too many cooks in the kitchen or you know nobody wants to be the loudest voice in the room but sometimes you really need to do that to be effective in moving everyone forward. Uh, when I moved to Las Vegas, they had a tasting group. The tasting group was bring your own. So I wanted to be part of this tasting group. I brought my own bottles. I immediately saw that one friend, she's an MS now, uh, she brought, I can't remember who the producer is, you guys can help me, it's Raison Goulet from, it's a Beaujolais, can't remember who it is, but it's like a $11 bottle of Beaujolais, like retail price. I'm like, we're studying for the MS exam. Why are you bringing an $11 bottle of Beaujolais? I did not like it at all. There was another guy who you could tell because he brought Monkey Bay Sauvignon Blanc like four times. I go, he woke up late, did not remember tasting group was here, stopped by Albertsons, grabbed a bottle of Monkey Bay Sauvignon Blanc and showed up. I did not want this to be my future. I said, hey, I have an idea here. What if we change the style of our tasting group? I was new to town. I was just like a guy who came to tasting group for like six weeks or so. And I said, what if we change this? I'll be the, the like QB for this, but I'll buy all the wine and then 
everyone can come in and just pick up the bottles that they need for their day. So we had 18 people in our group, which is quite a big group, right? But we bought like $4,800 or $5,500 worth of wine. And then I said, on January 1st, you are the captain. On January 8th, you're the captain. On my math bad, January 14th or whatever, you're the captain. As long as you show up on this day, just bring your 12 bottles, six whites and six reds. You're gonna pour everything. You're gonna do everything. As long as you do that, you don't ever have to come to tasting group again. And I'm sure if you guys are in tasting groups, we've all realized sometimes it's three of us. And we got here and we're like, how are we gonna do a flight of six if we don't have six people today, right? With six bottles. Now I know one of them at least because I brought one. It gave the idea that, hey, you just need to be accountable one time. Just come on that day, just do it that day. And then the people who couldn't make it for inventory or for whatever purposes did not have to show up anymore. It's kind of like a gym membership, right? A gym membership doesn't charge you when you walk in the door. When do they charge you? Every month, right? And if you show up or not, they still charge you. So if you want to get the most out of your gym membership, you go to the gym. If you don't, you just pay for it, right? And I realized that, that some people had more money than brains and they said, look, I'll pay to be part of this group and I might show up two or three times. Cool. The whole group benefited. Thank you X person for giving us $482 for us to buy this wine. And every other person who was super stoked got to come and taste wines. The other reason about this was um, for our uh, tasting group, nobody ever wanted to bring 97 Brunello. How many of you have brought 97 Brunello to your tasting group? I didn't because I wanted to drink 97 Brunello when something cool in my life happened, right? <laughs> Not just tasting group on Tuesday. Well, because we pooled our money, I could buy old Italian, old Bordeaux, old California, old Burgundy, and spread the cost out amongst everyone and no one felt like their special bottle that they were bringing for tasting group and they're only gonna get that little pour and you know, why am I always the one who's bringing the old bottles or whatever? It spread that out and it took the leadership side of this for me to be new to town and say, hey, I think we're not doing this right. I want to change it. So sometimes being the loudest voice, as long as you've thought it through and have a good recommendation idea, is what you need to do to build and sometimes push your community forward. Um, and continued learning. I know it's not legal in California to do anymore, but I did a lot of stagiaires. Uh, even as the general manager of this restaurant, used to take our staff. There was one restaurant called Kai in Arizona um, at the Sheraton Wild Horse Pass. It was a five-star restaurant. I wanted to go there to go see what they do. We made a relationship, sent them an email and said, hey, we work at this other five-star restaurant. Can I come with one of our captains, go work with you for two days, see what you guys do and learn? They did some cool things. How many of you have ever been there? One, two. It's pretty cool. Um, first off, they only used Riedel Sommelier series glasses. How and why could they keep these from breaking? I wanted to learn because we had Riedel Sommelier series glasses and we broke them all the time, right? They had a dedicated polisher in their restaurant who all they did was take the glasses. When somebody handed them to them, they put them up on top, hand washed and hand polished everything. We weren't going to hire one more person. So that wasn't going to work for us. That was what they did. They served, when you got a hot dish, you got hot silverware. When you got a cold dish, you got cold silverware. It's like, that is brilliant. That is so brilliant. Well, they had a bread warmer that they 
re turned into warm silverware and they had an ice cream fridge that they turned into the cold silverware fridge. I'm like, that is so cool. They did a ton of other things. Like they used to have different menus that were set for, uh, made by local artists. They would put them on the table and like move the candle over to it and have it like lit. And then they would tell you the story of one of your menus and who the artist was and how it related to the uh, native peoples of the region. And all of these things, we weren't gonna copy. We didn't have menus that were painted by native peoples, but it got my thinking outside of the box going, wow, that is so cool that they do that. And you can come up with those ideas and on your drive back for six hours from Arizona, think about all the cool things you can do and then you can bring it to your group or your restaurant or your GM or maybe even your tasting group and you say, hey, these are cool things that I saw. How can we recreate these in some way that's authentic to our restaurant? but continually learning. And I did a lot of stagiaires. I did stagiaires in, uh, in Vegas. I had a two Michelin star called uh, Alex uh, at the Wynn. I did them up in San Francisco at a place called The Dining Room with the Ritz-Carlton. Uh, as many restaurants as I could get in front of that had superior service, I wrote them a note and said, I just want to come in. I'll even pay for dinner if that's what it takes. Just let me work for the first like six hours. I'll get there in the morning and I'll work until nine o'clock at night and then chef can put out a dinner and I'll pay for my dinner and then we'll be good. And that's how you can get around sometimes. It sucks, but I mean, I was paying to get a flight anyway, right? So might as well pay for a good meal at a restaurant. And you know what? Most of the time what they do is you sit down and they give you a meal and do you pay for it? No, they said, thanks. You gave us extra labor today. And I learned all of these things. So continually learning is important. Um, getting into the meat of the topic, salary negotiations. Uh, if you have the chance to get a job, I would say, something that I've learned is salary negotiation only happens once. It really only happens once if you're going to stay somewhere. I've worked for the Miller family for six and a half years. I've only gotten a raise one time. Uh, I should have asked that question, how often either merit raises or just cost of living increases are done for the team because this family hadn't really ever done that like that. They're like, hey, you got hired, you're getting paid this right now and that's cool. Inflation happens and we all know what happened in the last year, but that wasn't part of their process, right? So I should have known that and looked and said, hey, I would like to include this in our offer letter because you can always go back and reference it later and say, hey, in my offer, it said that there's cost of living. The other thing that happens with only happens is your uh, incentive plan generally will only happen one time. Uh, where I went wrong was and in Vegas, I was excited to take this job they tied my incentive to budget numbers. Well, if you work or have run a restaurant, budget numbers are fluid. If you exceed the budget in Q1 and you have an H1 goal, what happens to the H1's budget or goal? It goes up. So what happened to my kick-ass first quarter by the time H2 happened was I was barely making it because they decided to move the goalpost. So understanding that I could have at the beginning asked more questions and said, hey, in regards to this incentive, uh, when will those numbers be written down and when will they be signed off and when can we post that up on the dartboard and say, when I hit that number, that's what it is and it doesn't change throughout the year. Should have asked that question, I didn't know it. So this is why I go back to the community. I should have called six other people and asked them, hey, does this sound like a good idea to you? Does this incentive plan seem like it's the right one for me? Thankfully, I had a general manager who 
of the hotel who said, yeah, you kind of got the shit end of the stick here. Here's what we're going to do instead. What do you think works for you and what do we think works for us? And what we ended up coming up with is, is one of the things that uh, I would highly recommend if you have a chance to get involved in incentive planning. Salary is cool. Make sure the salary works for you because you're only going to get bonused maybe every quarter or sometimes once a year, which is awful. But I said, hey, what if we do a percentage of sales? 2% of sales on all wine in these outlets and 1% of sales on wine in those outlets. Because I was on the floor at the fine dining restaurant so I could directly affect the sales. And I said, hey, this is not going to cost the company anymore. I'm going to take and increase the cost of all wines today and going forward by 2%. You can do it in an Excel sheet. If I paid 30 bucks for it, I was normally gonna put it on the menu for uh, 90 bucks. I can add that 2% in and who pays for it now? The guest does. Does the company come out of pocket? No, the company got an artificially inflated 2% into their sales because the customer is gonna pay for it. And now I collect that 2% that's going to help me sell more wine and for them, make it an easy, yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? If I was asking them to just do it without a plan, they're going to say no, because we put into the budget your salary and your incentive, and now you're asking us to tweak the budget by 2%. That doesn't work for us, right? But I gave them a plan and I was able to come to the middle, right? That whole Obama, like, come with three ideas and we'll see which one works. So, um, I think it was important. Uh, knowing your value not only within yourself, but also within the market, right? What do you have that is different and unique that you're going to be able to offer consistently and walk away from things that don't make sense. Somebody offered me a job. I'm not interested in leaving, but they came to me and said, hey, we want the corporate director job for this group called Spiegel World. Spiegel World is this kind of, it's like half circus, half hospitality company. Um, and they said, we think you would be really great. We want a master sommelier to run our, our beverage program. Do you want to have a conversation? I said, I'm always interested in having a conversation. He said, well, the salary range is between 90 and 105,000 and we think you're at the top end of that range. And that was not interesting to me uh, simply because I make more money than that, right? And the conversation that they were having was not realistic for what I have earned and learned in my life and bringing them the value as well. So sometimes, yeah, you can go take a job for 15 or 20 grand less and you can go, I know where it's gonna put me and I know that if I go take this job at this really great place for two years, it's going to change the trajectory of my whole life. We've all done that, right? I hope you have because sometimes it's a smart decision to just say the people I will meet and what I will learn will educate me and put me on a path forward. Sometimes it doesn't make sense and you should very much say, this does not fit with my values. And if they don't understand, I'm probably going to be taken advantage of, right? And you always want to be at parity with your employer if you can, right? If they believe in your value, they are going to see your value equally. If they do not believe your value, they're going to try to extract something out of you. And that is not always a great situation to be in. If you are a hiring person, recognize that too. Remember, I don't know what any of you guys in the room do, but if you're hiring someone, recognize that if there's something special and valuable about them and they're incredible, you should go to bat and say, hey, can we pay this person a buck 25 more an hour? Or can we pay them 
7,000 more per year, which is what they were asking for. Even though our salary band said between 75 and 80, they're asking for 87. If they're worth it, we should give them that worth. And you should know that yourself too. Um, otherwise, unless you know that this is really, really, really good. And I mean, if you go to work at Per Se in New York, that's a good thing to have on your resume, right? It's an important, like everybody knows Per Se and Thomas Keller. That network also is gonna open more doors for you in the future, because you can probably call someone back in Per Se and say, hey, I'm trying to get a job at this other place, or this person wants to hire me, can I put you down as a reference because you're one of the best chefs in the world, right? That really helps, but you have to know how long you can do that for too, right? Before kind of your value leaves. Uh, the other question you should ask yourself in seller negotiation is how you can transform the business and explain that to them. You should be there to give back more than they're paying you. Meaning, hey, I have some ideas about this place that are going to be immediately impactful and immediately valuable to you. Every person who's hiring is immediately looking at how I'm going to offset the salary that you have with revenue and therefore profit. So if you come with a bunch of ideas, hey, here's things that worked for me in the past, X, Y, Z, here's things that I think will work now that I know this space, A, B, C, and immediately put them in and explain them right away, you can bring value right away. And then in the first three months, ideally 60 days, you can show, hey, I put some things in that either decreased our inventory or got rid of dead stock or increased, sal uh, increased the revenues or came up with a new item that was very low cogs and very good profit margin, something that's going to change the, the perspective, you're going to win big that way. But you should come to your meeting, your interview or whatever you want to call it, your exploratory conversation with those ideas. But what does that mean? You also had to probably do some research ahead of time, right? so that you know the restaurant or you know the, the outlets in this hotel that you're gonna get a job at. So you can think, okay, you have a three meal restaurant, here's what I would do here. You have a fine restaurant, here's what you do here. You have a pool, so on and so forth, and come with ideas. Sometimes I'll put together a, a full PowerPoint of all of the things that I think are transformational for a business and I'll bring it to my meeting with whoever that important person is. Hopefully none of the other people did, right? And you just jumped to the top of the list. Um, payment structures, obviously we know there's salary only, salary and sales, um, salary plus tips. Is salary plus tips in California legal? It's not, right? So if you affect a schedule, you cannot collect a tip. Got it. Can you get uh, like private party? We bonus our team out of our total catering sales. Okay. So our leadership gets a bonus based on catering sales, so they feel the benefits of increased sales. So in California, it doesn't work. In, in Nevada and some other states, you can. You can have salary and you can collect tips. Uh, that structure, it might be worth thinking about. It usually doesn't happen. Uh, hourly plus tips. Sometimes that could be super valuable if you want a flexible schedule. If you want to work three days a week, at somewhere as like your second gig, I would be all about that, right? If I'm California, what's the minimum salary? Isn't it like sixteen twenty-five or something like that? I know it's sixteen thirty, so minimum exempt salary is just under sixty-nine thousand dollars. Yeah, sixteen, sixteen thirty yeah. an hour. Cool, and I'm getting tips, and I get to work like primo shifts, and I get to go surfing or whatever else. That sometimes can be good if you're trying to get like a second or third gig, or maybe you are eyeing the lead job somewhere and you said, hey, 
I just want to get my foot in the door. I'll do this right now because they'll realize that I'm a value and that I can jump the, the ladder real quick to get somewhere. So um, hourly and tips, hourly only. Um, this goes back to your value. How, how much is an hour of your time worth and what do you like to do with your time? To me, it's family and mostly health. So what could I do with an hour of my time to spend with my family and how much would somebody have to pay me not to do that, right? Is 50 bucks an hour good enough? Probably not because the three of us going out to dinner just like at a normal restaurant, that's like $65 including tip, right? We probably eat in an hour. So is 65 good enough? Well, maybe not because I could be at said restaurant eating, right? So is 75 good enough? 10 extra dollars than what it would cost me to go out? No, maybe it's $100 an hour, right? But knowing your value and where it starts from is a really important ask, right? If you're going to do something for just an hourly, and remember, somebody says, oh, I can't do that. You know, we can only offer $30 an hour. It might not be worth your time. Or, I mean, I think about counting people's sellers. It's a terrible job. <laughs> but um, maybe 30 bucks an hour could be worth it if that person might eventually say, well, you, you know all these wines and you know how to get more of them. Can you help me buy some more wine? Great. Now they have, I went to a doctor's house in, in Vegas a month ago, counted his cellar, and he spent $96,000 on extra wine that now he wants to sell. 96 grand extra. I'm like, well, that guy has a lot of money, so not only can I help him sell his wine at a percentage of extra you know, 10% commission, but I can help him buy some wine that he's not gonna wanna sell later at a loss. And now I can make even more money because I can find it. Oh, it's listed at 225 a bottle. I can tell him it's 255 a bottle and make some money in between. And that $30 an hour deal was like, yeah, fine, I'll do it now, but it can lean to something in the future, right? So there's other jobs, even for less, you just have to see where it's going to lead. Never just take it for today. Think about it strategically down the line. Um, Proving your worth, uh, especially in a wine director position. I'll tell you some of the things that I, I did because of need. Having a good relationship with your suppliers is important. Telling people you are going to do what you say you're going to do is very important. If you tell someone you're going to put something by the glass, you're gonna buy 10 pallets, or 10 pallets is probably a lot, but 10 cases of it, and you're going to move through it, do it. Because those people, A, are trusting you, they're going to their boss and saying, hey, I just got a 10 pallet, Oh, excuse me. I, I work in export now, so like most of my conversations are pallets, not cases. But um, yeah, we got a 10 case deal at this restaurant. They're going to start it next month, and then you don't. The supplier doesn't see the depletions happen, and they're like, "Hey, what happened to that 10 case BTG deal at this place?" Well, they haven't brought it in yet. Don't be that person. If you said you're going to do it, just do it because those suppliers can be your best allies. I work for a company that wrote the capex report at the very beginning of the year behind doors that didn't involve me. I wanted a new white burgundy fridge. Our white burgundy was stored either in the cold fridges, way too cold, or in the wine cellar, way too warm. And the people who wanted perfectly temperatured white burgundy could not get it. So what did I do? I found a supplier who had more money than they knew what to do with. And I said, great, I'm gonna put seven of your wines by the glass. I'm gonna buy 10 cases of each of these. And if any of them work, I'm gonna keep it going but I want a wine fridge. Here's a link to the one that I want to just show up one day here. 
technically tight house laws are um, illegal, but that's not my job. I'm the wine director. I just want a wine fridge, right? Now, that is, again, it's not your decision to make. No one's gonna come to you and say, what happened? No, because they found the value. They're making $38 or $40 a case on whatever you put on there. They're gonna spend some of their budget on it. And now I got a white wine fridge. And now my guests who were drinking Corchon Charlemagne were super stoked. And that only became a possibility because I was honest with them up front. I'm putting this wine by the glass. I'm buying 10 cases tomorrow. And then later on when I said, I'm gonna put seven of them all by the glass, they said, yeah, I know you're gonna do it. So cool. And it happens and it's only because you're honest with your suppliers and having good relationships. Um, understanding the three-tier system, private labels can sometimes be a huge benefit for you and your company. If you know how to put them together and know how and why they're going to move the needle for you. The bulk wine, and I'm telling you this from somebody who works at a winery, the bulk wine market, if we have one more reasonable harvest is going to be dirt cheap. Dirt, dirt, dirt cheap. If you want a California Appalachian wine right now, you can already put something in a bottle for 29 bucks a case. Yeah, some of it might come from the Central Valley. Some of it might come from Lodi. Some of it might come from the Central Coast. It might be blended, but it's if it tastes good, you can put that Chardonnay, Pinot, Cab, Sauvignon Blanc's hard to get, but those three, buy the glass at your restaurant. For 11 bucks a glass, it's gonna taste good as almost any other brand and you can name it something that is exclusive to you. And you know what? Sometimes that's a cool story to tell. Hey, we made this wine just for us. You know, we thought about our customer base and who you are, Susie Cul-de-sac who comes in here every day and you like to drink this stuff. So we thought of you when we put this in the bottle and you can only get it here. And they're like, yeah, you know what? I love that wine and you did that because it's a good business decision and you can get it consistently, right? And then there is no reason to have a relationship with maybe a supplier who you don't like, who used to have that in the place, right? And you can find other suppliers who you want to work with and expand your network. Um, let's see, inventory management, we already talked about it, but as soon as you can get in and figure out how to move dead stock, you're going to look good for almost any manager, even if you're just a sommelier. If you can ask them about a dead stock report or work there for a month, and then just realize I counted those same six bottles this month and I counted them last month and I counted them again. A, that should be your job to try to move those. But even beyond that, finding creative ways. Say, hey, I know we have a party coming up. I saw it on the catering board. They're looking for $85 wine. Well, can we do something called sommelier selection and present that to the catering person and say, hey, can you just tell them you don't have to pick ahead of time. Our sommeliers are actually gonna help you find something great from the list that goes with your food. I used to do that all the time. And I would go through my inventory and go, we haven't sold that bottle of Gruner in months and months and months and I have 12 of them. Great, there's a party of 50. We're putting Gruner on their menu tonight. Sure, you're gonna have Susie Cul-de-sac who says, I don't drink Gruner. What is, what is this? I've never had this before. You say, I picked this because the arugula salads you have in front of you is incredible with Gruner Veltliner. If you've never had this before, it's going to change your life. You're gonna go from a Rombauer drinker into a Gruner Veltliner drinker. <laughs> if you only have to make her happy and she's the one who's complaining at the end of the night and you turned her around, 
Perfect. And who else did you make happy? Whoever's running the inventory and the restaurant for moving through that stuff, right? So inventory management is huge. Uh, free goods, use them to your advantage as often as you can, right? Sometimes people will, you'll require them to order 12 bottles if they want to bring in a special case of wine. I used to do that. If you want that cuvee of Sonoma Cruterre, what is it called, Le Perriers or whatever? I didn't have that on my list, but I said, if that's the one you want, you gotta buy a case. Well, at the end of the night, we had three bottles left and I said, hey, do you want me to put these in a box? And they go, ah, no, I'm flying back to Indianapolis. We don't want those anymore. Great. They paid for it, we charge them for it. Now I have free goods that I can either put on another party, I can put by the glass, I can put on the list and I can move through and now I've made essentially twice the revenue. Uh, in some states that's illegal. I don't think that's illegal in California. It's not illegal in Nevada. So use it to your advantage. Um, say again. The only ones that you have to worry about are franchise laws and that's from the like distributor and supplier side. <laughs> Unions. Um, there's a lot of labor laws, but not really a lot of laws in terms of the like three-tier beverage system. Yeah. You also can, you also can only receive 25 cases of wine direct consumer uh, at any address per year. So there's also that too. And you cannot buy things by auction and there's no consignment. And so California is actually a lot more liberal in terms of the laws of, of beverage. Um, start with revenue and profit for any of your thought processes. Right, I said that again, how can I bring value? How can I make more revenue? And how can I bring more profit to the bottom line? If you are talking like that, that's how I was talking like that as a GM in my meetings. That's how I was talking like that when I was a beverage director for a hotel. And that's certainly right now how I'm talking like that from our ownership when I'm saying, hey, we have a deal to send some wine to India. It's gonna cost us this much to do it, but here's our long-term strategy. Here's how much profit it's going to bring. And as long as you're thinking of those two, top line revenue, and profit for conversations, you are going to, I think, be speaking the right language um, altogether. Uh, and creative programming. There are products that most of us wouldn't find a way to use within our beverage program. One of them that comes to mind is Quadi Black Muscat. Have you guys had this before? I like it on its own, but it's fortified and it's way too sweet. I like to drink it as a spritzer, especially in the summer. My wife likes sweet wine. So I thought about, okay, Yvette likes sweet wine and she likes this if I take just some soda water, put it in there with a little bit of mint and lime and the Quadi Black Muscat, delicious. So what did I do? I took a bottle that I think wholesale cost is like 13 bucks. It could be less, it could be like 10. If you take that whole bottle, A, it's 15% alcohol, pour it into a pitcher at the pool, a little bit of mint, a few blackberries muddled, soda out of the gun. We were charging $85 for a pitcher of this by the pool. It's filled with ice, it's refreshing, and people want to order another one and another one. And the cost on this is about $10. I don't know what, again, I'm not that great at math. I used Excel sheets, but I don't know what the COGS is, but it's somewhere like 12%. That's great when you can then go back to your fine dining restaurant and instead of charging $3,800 for some cool burgundy that you wanna sell, you can charge $2,100. And then the people who are burgundy fans come in and go, holy shit, look at the price of those burgundies on that list. I want to go there and I want to tell all my friends, go there. They have this stuff on the list for this price. And what does that do? It raises your revenues and it allows you to be a better buyer because now I can ask you for more. I can ask you for more and more and more and more. And every salesperson wants you to be that buyer, right? Um, so creative programming uh, for, for you. And I know we want to 
go drink some wine. But um, going into bigger positions, longevity is important. Uh, I, I've seen a lot of resumes that are like four pages long and unfortunately have like six months here, nine months there, a year and a half there. Longevity is something that a hiring manager wants to look at because if they're gonna put resources into you, they want you to give back. And how I've always thought of my career is, I owe them at the beginning. No matter what, they hired me and I have to prove myself, I have to work extra hours, I have to show them why I'm value-driven, especially in the first 60 or 90 days. But even sometimes for the first two years, I'm learning how accounting works. I'm learning how our labor numbers affect everything that I'm doing. I'm learning how, learning everything. So two years, you finally just got back to okay, I'm not learning anymore. From there, you have another two years of where you're probably in the positive, but what do you have to do? You have to spend another however long making up for that time that you were a suck on the business. I always think of myself like that. And almost every other job I've done, I didn't know what I was doing to begin with. And I had to learn. And then once I did that, I had to make up for the time that I learned. If I left as soon as I figured out that job, what are they going to do? They're going to find someone else. And unfortunately, they might have to put someone in there who has to learn again. And they're going to feel like they got smashed on the thumb, right? For bringing in somebody, I taught them a bunch, and then they left right away. I don't think it's a good idea to be that person. I think if somebody gives you the, the respect and the trust to, hey, you might not know a lot, but you're a good person and I feel like you can do this job, stay until you not only have paid up that time, in terms of your value, but I always like to give more because when you give more, even when you leave, people will call your former employers and say, hey, how was Will with this and that and that? And they say, you know what? He was great. By the time that he left, I already felt like he needed to go do something else. It, he already had been here so long and he gave so much value to this place that I couldn't wish him any more than the best, right? And you want to be that person. But if your resume is constantly hopping and hopping and hopping and hopping and hopping, that's cool if you are in a busser to a waiter to a head waiter to maybe a first sommelier job. Sure. Once you get beyond that point and you start taking salaried positions that involve the P&L and your direct effect on it, you probably need to make the decision. Am I going to be here for three or four or five years? And you hope that the culture of the place is going to allow you to do that. I understand if you get hired somewhere and the chef is a dick and you just can't handle it, speaking from experience, um, and you're like, I just can't do this. That's fine. That's fine if you left after a month and you just said, hey, the, the company culture is not right for me. I wouldn't put it on my resume. There's no point. But if you're going to stay, go somewhere, stay as long as you can. Um, growing and giving back, I mentioned that. Your reputation also is important. Uh, every town is a small town. I knew who got the job at uh, Fountain Blue, which is opening up like a week before they announced it and before anybody knew. You know why? Because it's a super small town and the people who heard about it started talking about it. Before they announced, oh, we hired this person and did a press release. So your reputation is really important. If you're gonna say you're gonna do something, do it. If you're gonna say you're gonna go somewhere, go there. If you, if, you, if you think that people aren't paying attention at 2 a.m. after most of the party is over with, and you know, there are situations that we've all been in that you, know, you can make a decision A or you can make a decision B, right? Think of the one that is your reputation first 
because people are going to tell everybody, oh, you know what? We were late there at that party and you know what? They, they just put all the Chardonnay in one bottle or whatever. I mean, whatever situations you're in that will take away from your reputation, try to always, always, always think of that because every town is too small and then someone's going to leave and they're going to go work in a bigger market or a different market. And then you're going to get to town. They go, hey, didn't you work with Will? Oh yeah, he did this thing one time and it was like super shady and I don't know if I trust him, right? So always try to think of your reputation. Um, and then your certification, it is interesting to think about. I mean, I have a certification as a master sommelier, but my life didn't necessarily change like the next day. People reply to my emails more now, but not all the time. I mean, especially in the export world. I work for a fairly important vineyard in the world, I think. But I send emails to Belgium and it's cricket sometimes. So your education should be about you trying to get something that's going to make you better, not necessarily about getting a badge on your jacket that is going to tell other people that you did something, right? Because I've talked to advanced sommeliers who I think got very lucky and I've talked to certified sommeliers who are the most brilliant people in the room where they are just, how did you learn this stuff so quickly and how do you know this about your business? And certification, I think, should be part of giving an employer on paper an easy value to understand. They see that you have a, a certification of some sort. They're going to know, okay, you've put in the time and effort, uh, but it's not the end all be all. Jeff Porter, I don't know if you guys know Jeff, he's sort of the most important Italian wine expert, in my opinion, in America. Jeff has like a certified, and he came and worked with us at Addison for a couple nights to do a stage. We didn't have a very strong Italian portfolio. He just wanted to like feel the dining room and work with us. But if I had to call anyone today, I would not call an MS. I would not call anybody from Italy. I would call Jeff, because Jeff knows this country's Italian wine program, like what we can bring in anywhere better than anybody. And Jeff, yeah, I think he has a certified. So sometimes it doesn't matter. Final thing I want to talk about was contracts. Um, so some of you have contracts. Thinking about your rate, going back to that, like how much does it cost for you to go for an hour with your family to dinner? 65 bucks to somewhere that's like Stefano's Mediterranean Grill. That's the last time we went out and that cost $65 for three of us to eat and have drinks at a like order at the counter and they bring it to you place. That's not even a memorable night. That was just going out. So to me, I would never do anything less than $65 because that's just that is what that costs, right? And yes, it was convenient because we were on the way home and we wanted to stop and like, but I don't want to cook dinner tonight, right? So I got some value out of it because we didn't have to stay in the kitchen for an hour and a half and clean all the dishes. But thinking about your rate all the way through and everything about it. Sometimes there are project rates, right? You can ask someone, okay, we want to find a inventory list of things on our list that are old or want to be destroyed or sold immediately. We want you to inventory everything, give us that list, and then you can walk away after that. I did that for my old hotel. They were closed for COVID and they said, you know all these wines, can you tell us what we should destroy so we can write off or what we could sell and what the value of those wines to sell is and what we can or should keep. I said, cool, 500 bucks. I know where you keep all the wine. I can 
easily find a list. I can highlight them for you and say, these are your destroy, these are your keep, these are your sell for a discount and where to sell them. 500 bucks, it took me a full day, eight hours, but it was also in town and it was done super easily. Uh, your day rate, think about your day rate literally as a 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. Because that's usually what a day rate is. Um, it's not nine to five, and it also involves you sometimes driving to the airport or parking your car, or you know, maybe it's driving up to LA. I'm from San Diego. I do not like to drive to LA. <laughs> it just isn't my deal, right? Like sitting in traffic and dealing with it, like LA is just a lot. They might get like a $200 LA charge in my brain. And I would add that to my day rate and say, yeah, I'm happy to do this. It's a thousand bucks. And sometimes you might be, they might, you might be too rich for their blood. Me sitting in five hours of highway five or 405 traffic is not worth it <laughs> when I have to think about that. So think about your day rate and have it be consistent for the worst and the best situations. Hey, if I can get there and actually do it in three hours, cool. They still charge my day rate. If I can, if it takes me all day, 5 a.m. or waking up at 4.30, all the way till I get home at 11.30, sometimes it's worth it, right? Um, I have a travel rate and an in-town rate that are different. If somebody wants me to get on an airplane, now that I told you my priorities for my life are family and health, getting on an airplane isn't always that great. So, I say, hey, it's gonna cost you this much, no matter what, if I have to get on a plane and you gotta pay for a travel day. So if I'm getting there a day ahead of time, you're paying my daily rate for the day before and all the hotels and everything. Um, some of you might wanna do consulting or free, uh, not free, um, freelance stuff. Think about those kind of things because if you're just everyday rate is all the same, you might be way too cheap and you might, after everything's all said and done, go, that really wasn't worth it. Even though they paid me 500 bucks for the day, yeah, that just didn't make sense. So think through the worst. Um, understand the deliverables for what you've said and make sure that you can recap those deliverables to them as best as you can. Uh, if I say, hey, I've been able to, on average, turn around a business, like I'm, I'm doing some consulting with a tasting room for a, a wine region. And I said, hey, on average, we've been able to increase revenues by 15 to 20% in the first six months. If I tell them that, I want them to pull a report at the end of six months and I wanna say, hey, how much did your revenue increase? And they say, oh, it was 32%. You said, yeah, exactly. Because then you can take those numbers and you can next time, and this is something I've learned, I'm gonna write into my contract rate for this, say, hey, if we're able to increase revenues beyond X, I want a bonus because who really made the money? The tasting room did, right? They should be super stoked that their revenues increased by 36% or 35% and they go, hey, you get an extra for coming in, thanks. And a lot of that hospitality consulting, when you're doing that, especially with wine lists, if it's just a one-off, you could help by just managing and printing a wine list in a different way, make them a lot more money. And if you can deliver that on what you say you can do, you're gonna be able to bring that to other people and say, hey, I did this for these three projects before and it's super, super valuable. Um, in terms of wine lists, this is one that I've been burned on before. Um, if somebody asks you to develop a wine list for a new concept, you should never give them anything if you are not paid for it completely. Meaning if they want you to put together a 
let's call it 350 or 400 selection wine list and a bunch of different price points. The only thing I would give them is an outline. Here's an outline of what I think your wine list could look like. Pinot Noir from this area at this price point. That's it. If they want me to go talk to suppliers and get distributors on board and put all of everything together, the last thing I'm going to give them is that fully finished wine list without a check in my hand. I want, and because I did this for somebody, wrote them a wine list and they said, cool, okay, we appreciate it and didn't wanna pay. It sucks. So what I do now is I do a outline and the other thing that I do is uh, have something that is repeatable. I have a bunch of these. It's fun because I've done them before. If somebody wants a California cuisine, California focused restaurant with 150 selections that are super manageable at 80 bucks, I have an outline and I have a mostly finished wine list that I can copy and paste from this account to that account to that account. Everyone's different and every, every company has seen the value in that type of wine list that's put together for them. But why do I need to start from scratch again when it's something that I can do? And you know what? How long does it take me? Probably two days, two and a half days to put together like a really good 150 position wine list. But at that point, I'm able to repeat that over and over and over again. And if you have the opportunities to do this, do not recreate the wheel every single time. There's just no value to it for you and your time, right? I think about ChatGPT and like AI, right? And how there are some people who are literally able to do their job now in one third or one quarter of the time. Should they be paid less because they're using some tool that they can get? Absolutely not. They found some workaround, right? And if you writing wine lists and being a consultant for a restaurant, helping them get opened, is your workaround by having a, it doesn't have to be cut and paste cookie cutter. Like if you know the neighborhood is super interested, like if you're in Kensington and you wanna write a Kensington wine list that is okay and you switch out these 15 SKUs or those 15 SKUs that'll sell and you're talking about Del Mar, which is a totally different vibe. Yeah, but I mean, mostly the same 80 or so wines are still gonna make sense in both places, right? So try to do something that's repeatable. Um, and then know your value proposition What and ask for specific specifics that you know you can deliver, meaning here's what I can bring to you and here's how I can make sure that this happens. If you're writing a wine list, for example, I know all of these distributors, I generally know their price book. I know what's in stock all of the time. I know that once we write this and we have it listed on your list, someone could come in here, easily reorder, put them in, and they're never gonna run out of stock. Vintage changes are not gonna matter. All of this is easy, plug and play. This wine list will keep you happy for two years if you wanted it to. Or if you put a bunch of stuff that's allocated and hard to get on there, know that, hey, maybe you're giving yourself an additional job right? Sometimes you want that. Sometimes you say, well, I think that I should come back monthly or every quarter to review the list because some of these things you can only buy once. And if they're gone, we're going to have to find other things to put in. I don't want to give myself a quarterly job. I am not interested in that right now. But if you're, if you're looking for something that's repeating and you have seven restaurant groups that you work with and they want to pay you, quarterly all the time and you're working with that restaurant group and that restaurant group over and over again, that sounds great, right? It's like getting a salary because you made yourself indispensable. Sometimes I want to be completely dispensable. Here you go. Here's your project list. Here's everything that you need. 
right there, pay me, now you're done, right? So think about it from what you're looking for. Um, and I would say the last thing, send a recap as often as you can on what you are doing and how you have delivered. Uh, because sometimes you'll ask for money up front, which I always do in a contract perspective. Pay me this now. You have to trust me that this is gonna happen. And then constantly over communicate. You've received this right now. You're going to receive this in the next few weeks. You're going to receive this at the end of the month. And then recap it at the end of the month and say, hey, here's all of the things that you've gotten. Because sometimes people will go, wow, they've already given us so much that, uh, well, I mean, what, what else do we need? And you having a list of full deliverables all the way through. At this time, you're going to get this and this and this and this to finish up the project will make them eager to keep you coming back, right? And by telling them, hey, this is the whole plan I have. I'm going to help you from A to B to C all the way to Z to help you get this place running or you know, back in shape or whatever you're going to do. You want to keep their value interested in you. If you've sort of done it all right up front and you have a six month contract or something, who's to say that they're not going to like pay you at month four and they're like, well, what are you doing for us anymore? You already did everything. So come up with your own plan if it's a like multi-month or multi-quarter you know, quarter kind of thing. Plan things that you can do all along the way to show, okay, there's a realistic idea that in this month, we're gonna have to manage your dead stock. Then we're going to have to, once your dead stock is gone, look at new uh, items to put on there. Then once the new items are on, we're going to have to create ways to utilize those items consistently throughout your catering programming, right? I've laid out specific ways that they're going to do it. And if you give them everything at once, uh, sometimes you do get screwed and getting a lawyer is not cool. I talked for much longer than I wanted to. We want to drink some wine, but uh, any questions that any of you have or thoughts, maybe there's something that popped into your head that I should learn from your experiences. I'll just share quickly. I did some consulting and Will kind of mentioned it. Uh, we were talking about the day rate. She didn't want to pay the day rate, but then when I talked about how many team members were actually going to be involved and broke it down by actually how many team members you were investing in that day, it was a lot easier for her to swallow. Like, okay, you're paying me X. I'm going to do this for 20 team members. How many hours? She was, she was very hesitant until I was like, no, 20 people, this is what it breaks down to. This is how much you're investing in someone today for your team. That was easier for her. Totally. I guess just here in San Diego, it is a little strange because we are in, okay, it's a luxury item, right? And it's a luxury item that a lot of people in San Diego aren't necessarily familiar with the necessity of it for like proper dinner service. For, um, so if you're not like fucked up <laughs> how do you say like hey i'm worth it when there are only like a couple of standards in which like having a floor song in san diego in general is something that we can point to right like we have addison born and raised del frisco's like what what other like just floor songs do we have in san diego i think that is a uh you you aren't off and i don't have an answer but i can tell you that's why i moved to another market 
Uh, and I, I don't want to say that as like, that's the answer, but realistically where you are today, being able to list those is a lot better than it used to be. And I think it's more just about the culture that, you know, there's a lot of cool beers and breweries here, right? And people get put on this track of beers and breweries and that's what they start to drink and they don't see wine as part of their experience. I think it's about being able to continually find places to put wine on the list. And like, there's really cool restaurants. There's a place, again, I haven't lived here for like 11 years, but I remember I went to this place that had like um, brain tacos. It was in North Park. And I was just like eager to try some brain tacos. It was gross. I'm not going to eat it again. But um, having like a Mexican wine on that list at a place that was like super about like classic Mexican food instead of just some beers and some cocktails is a way they're never going to have a sommelier, right? They're never going to. But your value of, hey, if you were doing some consulting and had a chance to talk to their GM and said, hey, I think it would be really cool if you guys added some wines to your list that were from Mexico. I know a few of these. Would you want to talk about me helping you guys put some of these wines on the list and connecting you with people? And it's a, you can pay me 500 bucks and I'll tell you why it's a value and you can put them by the glass and you'll see it show in your sales and the people who like wine are not going to feel out of place. My wife doesn't drink beer. So she would look at the list and I mean, she'd probably have some tequila, but she would, you know, you want to find something and explain it to them. This is why. But the, the fact about having sommeliers, there are places that probably lost sommeliers. Does the Hotel Dell still have a sommelier? I don't know. You guys probably would know better than I do. But at some point they did for sure. And there was a restaurant out there all the time that had a, a sommelier. I don't know if they have one now. There's a lot of places in town that don't anymore because they don't see the value. I think when you can talk about P&L and profit first, there you're delivering on why you're a value. If you just try to explain it from the perspective of, hey, a sommelier does these things for service, nobody's going to care. Truthfully. Yeah. older, new guy in the industry as it pertains to restaurants, because I ran my own business for a while, uh, kind of in the, the private sector, right? Um, so when I came on at Huntress for R&D Group, um, they didn't have a song, they had a wine list that had a lot of holes in it. Uh, I filled the gaps, at least from that perspective, and it took a very personality-based um, service experience. So I, that's kind of, I guess, something I took from West Hagen, who you both know, right? Uh, explaining to the guests, the why and the how behind why we pair wine with certain foods and what it does to the experience, if you can relate that to somebody, I felt like I got a really good response. Then I started getting, um, this, is a weird, this is a weird one, right? Because uh, what do you call them? Reviews, right? Reviews on Yelp. Some people don't like leaving them and they just will never leave them no matter mm -hmm. how good the experience is. But some people when prodded with that tremendous personality-based experience will leave a review and now all of a sudden now I'm getting I used to bonus, but I'm getting these, you know, $50 gift cards to the restaurant I work at where I can take my wife, take my kids out, right? Yeah. Because I'm getting all these reviews now. So five-star review because the song was awesome. Or Josh, hey, Josh really took care of us, explained this to us. We left with knowledge. So educating at table is how I kind of also cut my my niche out there from a place that's never had a sommelier before and never saw the benefit of having one. But actually, thanks to Stacey Urban, she's the one who put me in that position at Huntress, so. 
That's that's uh, I've never thought about that. Hey, every every time they mention me, I want a gift card. That's super cool. <laughs> well, that's you know, it's not it's not great. It's not about like take my family out to eat, right? It's something. It's not nothing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good, for sure. Would you mind outlining the duties of floor song versus line director? Things that you think are just floor song, things that you think are overreaching into a larger... I mean, I think, I think a floor song is keeping the cellar tidy, making sure things are stocked, making sure the glassware and decanters are polished, uh, making sure that all of the serviceware that you're going to use, you know, coasters are clean and all of that stuff. I think making sure the wine list is printed and up to date is a floor song deal, I think. Obviously, service at night is a floor psalm deal. I think anything that has to do with, of course, counting inventory at the end of the month is a floor psalm deal. Making sure the buy the glasses are stocked. And if they're out going out of stock or you mentioned, see that inventory is coming through, that should be a, you tell the wine director. Uh, a floor psalm, unless you really have to, I don't think should be involved in putting together catering parties or other thing like that. I think they, should make sure they ordered the wine or that the wine is there for the party, especially like two or three days ahead of time. But I think that's a wine director job. A wine director should be looking at catering and having catering appointments and talking about what needs to go on this wine list and things like that. That I don't think that's a floor psalm job, um, especially the wine director should be managing the total inventory and making directives. Here are wines that you guys need to push. Here's a list of 50 wines that I want gone by this week. I don't care if somebody said they don't want Gruner Veltliner, they're drinking Gruner Veltliner. Like that's a wine director job. I think a floor psalm is more service focused and just keeping things running day to day. Do you view it differently? No, I'm just asking because yeah. there's nothing you can really look up on the internet. All yeah. places do things differently. And so my next my follow-up question is gonna be pay-based. Because again, it's not like you can just look up what does a floor psalm make in, especially the San Diego market. Would you go over pay structures? Yeah. I I think a floor psalm is usually a hourly job with some sort of tip incentive structure, right? You could make it, you could propose if people are open to it that I'm a out floor psalm, here's my hourly. I make tips as well because I don't know if you're a pooled house, great, you get tips automatically. If you're not a pooled house, I don't wanna make $100 a night when the servers are making 700 because they don't wanna tip the sommeliers. So maybe it's about, Hey, if I'm a floor sum, all of these areas that I affect by the glass sales, especially and uh, bottle sales, I want to be involved in some percentage of the sales. Maybe it's a half a percent because that could be way more valuable than getting tipped out a hundred bucks. Well, I feel like specifically, like, like I'm also the first time that one of the companies I work for has ever had. And like the last thing I want to do is de-centivize selling wine because the servers feel like, oh shit, if I like break that server to the table, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I want them to feel like I'm kind of like just a luxury item that like appeared on your floor one day. Like I'm here to help you. I'm here to pad your sales. I'm here to increase the experience of the guest. And the owner should pay me for that. Like you guys shouldn't have to pay me for that. But should be the the two by the lamp that sits in the restaurant. You need the lamp, right? You need the song. You pay for the song. The two percent incentive on wine sales is something that most restaurants could easily understand. It's not an increase that is going to 
affect the total sales. If you take a bottle from 100 to 102, someone's still gonna buy it, right? If you're paying out that extra 2%, uh, yeah, there are some taxes and stuff that go along with it. So it's not as simple as like 2%, but it's easy enough to explain it as a number. But they're going to know that everything that's selling, you are incentivized on every single bottle that goes out there, right? Versus, yeah, if you're just waiting for a server to tip you, you're going to leave. <laughs> I would. I mean, if I was at a restaurant that was selling $2.1 million a year of, of wine, and I was making $125 a night from the service staff, unless I really wanted to open cool bottles that I had the opportunity to open. And to me, drinking DRC is not that cool if I have to go home and look at my bank account struggling, right? So I think it, I think some of you sometimes fall on the sword, but unless you are really, really, really super, super stoked at learning, know that this is your time to learn. But if you're thinking about a five-year job, those bottles of DRC that you get to taste every six months are not, in my opinion, worth it over the long term, right? I was wondering also how you would negotiate, uh, say you work at a place that's open Wednesday to Sunday, um, working off the clock. Uh, say you're getting your delivery drops on Wednesday Why, why would you be working on Tuesday? Well, not like in maybe right. on premise, but you're still like in sure. with like making those deliveries happen. I think from my perspective, why are you working on Tuesday? If, if my salespeople want to sell me something, they're going to come to me when I'm available. If you want to go to lunch with some cool supplier or some Rioja producer on Tuesday, cool, go for it. But my distributors, I always thought of them as I'm their customer. They make me happy, right? There's no reason I have to talk to a distributor on Tuesday. If my job is not on Tuesday, don't call me. Don't ask me anything. If there's some reason that you have to be working on Tuesday, then you should be. If like, Hey, we got this party put on for Friday and I need to like, I need to call this person on Tuesday. Tell your boss, hey, you guys added this thing. I need three extra hours to get this done. But I don't think. What happened was that obviously you would want with the delivery windows, you would get a drop on Friday and then maybe be out of stock of certain things after a busy weekend and have to get connection with them on Tuesday to restock for Wednesday. But I would. I think that sounds like a personal problem. I think that sounds like, hey, I need to work on Saturday later, which sucks. But if your hours are Wednesday to Saturday and you have to stay late on Saturday, then if the overtime is getting paid for, you should work the overtime. Or if you're salaried, you should work your, on Saturday until it's done, send all the emails that you can. But if you're especially an hourly person or trying to, if your salary, especially saying, well, sometimes I work on Tuesday, so I want to get paid more. If I'm the, if I'm your food and beverage director, I'm just going to say, no, don't work on Tuesday anymore. I would try to change your, it sounds like you should make your structure more focused on yeah, getting I mean, the job done during your week. If it was like, like where they like draw the line of like, I'm not available on these days. Well, yeah. Simultaneously needing to do things or how to negotiate 
does was like he, he can't it's hard to quantify like okay well i was at the park you know enjoying myself but i'm still like technically clocked in on my phone yeah like, that that sucks that's that's why I have two cell phones, yeah. and that's why I keep one of them in a drawer on my weekends, and I don't answer it. I mean, realistically, I'm telling you this because I've been in your position before where I was doing a bunch of that, and it sucks, and you shouldn't be doing that. You should try to find a way that you cannot do that, especially when your uh, distributors, you are their customer. They should not be calling you, especially on a Tuesday, asking you for something, and you're, you need to figure out how to make your job fit within your, like, four days or five days of work so that you're not having to figure out stuff. And if you are, maybe you want to keep it. I don't, even if you kept track of it and said, Hey, here's a Tuesday that I had to work when I was on the park. And here's a Monday that somebody called me. No one's going to, no food and beverage director is going to go to then the GM of the hotel and say, we need to pay more because there was some instances, you know what the GM is going to say? Yeah. I had to go to an event on Sunday too. It sucks. But, and I had to miss my kid's baseball game, but I had to go. It, it sucks, but it's the reality. You should try to figure out how to do it within your your time. You shouldn't be answering phones on days you're not getting paid. Thank you. Does anybody disagree? I mean, you certainly are welcome to. I know you have to get the job done, and I've been there, but this is this is my life experience saying that you should try to f figure it out that you don't have to do that anymore because nobody's going to pay you. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to, and if they do, please tell me what language you use to get them to pay you <laughs> and tell all of us. So I, I kind of built that in to uh, staff training. So I get a flat rate for staff training and it doesn't take me long to do the staff training. I broke down my hours of like how long it would take me. You create a, a you know, a, whatever, a spreadsheet or whatever, or a, a go by or a printout I can give to the staff on those training days. And I built that, that, that cost in. So I get paid $100 flat rate just for staff training, which takes me 10 minutes to create. I already have everything that I need. It takes 10 minutes straight, but then I'm sending texts to suppliers or whatever, maybe one extra day that I'm not working per week. And that's kind of the built-in cost that I just picked for it. Again, that but goes back to not, that. It's still not technically worth it. It goes back to your project rate, right? Or you're like, you should think of the worst possible situations. I know you have your job right now, but whatever your next job is, you should think about your worst possible situations where I'm working on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, to get something done for my Wednesday through Saturday job. And now you should be asking for that pay that takes into consideration all of those, right? Because I, I have never had success. Maybe I'm just not good at it, but I have never had success of going back to somebody saying, hey, pay me more for something that uh, I wasn't anticipating upfront doing. It, it's a hard sell to any like food and beverage director, or GM or anything, I promise you. It's just, it sucks, <laughs> but it's not a reality. Right. I and bring it up next time that someone invites you on a, a trip to Paso Robles and it's all expenses paid and you want to go and say, hey, I don't want to take off Wednesday and Thursday this week. I know it's slow and I'm going on this trip. There have been all of these dates that I have worked 
Mondays and Tuesdays to get it done. You know, how about we call this even? And if they would have made you take vacation and or made you not get paid and now you're getting paid to go on a trip to Paso or go to some cool supplier lunch, maybe that's your, maybe you're okay with that instead of like dollars. Cause it's very hard for someone to take your salary that they already have in their budget and raise it because of extracurricular time doing work. So legally, how do you put this into writing? Like, is it enough for like an owner to send you an email and be like, yes, this is how much I will pay you? Or is it enough for them to just say it? Or do you have to like actually get it? I would want it in writing for sure. Yeah, I would want it in writing, but also I would want to track it specifically. And you can get tracking software to say, hey, between this time and that time I was working, and how much is that worth it to you? Like, if they're gonna pay you your same salary, but they want you to send them a report at the end of the month that showed I worked between 12.04 and 12.22, and like the specific topic of the thing, that seems like a pain in the ass. I don't know if I wanna do that, you know? Versus, sometimes you just gotta suck it up. But I think mainly about the, the dollars, I doubt anybody's gonna pay you extra, so try to figure out how to work it into your system of getting paid during. Uh, let's go drink some wine. How about that? Thank you. Thanks everybody for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.